0: Almighty God, we thank you for blessing us, granting us your divine favor, and giving us all that we need and more as we see in evidence here, worshiping you in this space, evidence of your love and faithfulness overflowing. We ask God that we would be able to give you proper And pleasing worship to you now. May our hearts turn to you and by your grace may it be softened that we may receive the word that you give us. For your glory, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 3 to 31. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3 to 31. When you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's holy word. Hear now the word of the Lord. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We have been learning about the order in which creation took place. And this is part two of that sermon from what I started last week. The order is revelatory of God's nature. It shows us his character. And last week we went over how the days of creation were split into six days, each day with its own significance and we also saw how the days clumped up together from days 1 to 3 and 4 to 6 show how, we, how God would give form to what was first formless and fill what was first void. We also went over the importance and significance of a light being created on the first day. And this morning, I would hope to go from days 2 to 6 in chapter 1 of Genesis Once light is created, once light is created, that's something we need to keep in mind for the rest of creation. With every preceding day, God uses what has already been created to create on top of that. Going off of the Lego analogy one more time, after you make the base of the Lego tower, you can build on top of that. But the way God does this is by creating and separating this separation, is this distinguishing, is what we see as ordering. First comes one, and then comes two, and then you separate one and two. That's how you get order. If one meant two, and two could mean one, you actually don't have anything. You still have a formlessness and a void. You have mush. When you rage against order, and especially God's order, Is it any wonder that students across this nation are debating? They are debating on whether 2 plus 2 equals 4. And guess who's winning? It's the 2 plus 2 can equal 5 group, apparently, because it has been determined that 2 plus 2 equaling 4 is racist. Now, you might say, that's ridiculous. Who would do such a thing In 2021, California education official proposed a mathematics curriculum framework which would guide K-12 instruction. It is approved by California's Instructional Quality Commission, and in this framework you are to use a document titled A Pathway to Equitable Math Instruction Dismantling Racism in Mathematics Instruction. In it, we see that addressing students' mistakes, so if you say, oh, this is not the correct answer, if you address a mathematics equation forthrightly, it is telling you that it is a form of white supremacy. A document for the Equitable Math Toolkit would say, quote, and I'm quoting from the toolkit, the concept of mathematics being purely objective is unequivocally false. And teaching it is even much less so. Upholding the idea that there are always right and wrong answers perpetuates and in their quotes objectivity. Because that's also racist. And then you might wonder: that was 2021. There's no way that passed, right? As soon as they introduced it, you know, people would write letters, all these math professors would write letters, please don't do this. And so they would delay it for another 10 months. <clears throat> There's no way that would pass. We are living in 2024. This is the United States of America. There's no way it passed, though, right? As of six months ago, California will adopt a new, quote, equity and, quote, social justice based mathematics. The State Board of Education unanimously passed the new framework for Californian public schools to renew the state's, quote, commitment to ensuring equity and excellence in math learning for all students. Now, you might think, that's just foolishness, but is it that much of a big deal? My question is rather, why upturn the order? Why the insistence on making two plus two equal five? And as we've read this morning, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. The Bible says that the insistence, the ignorance, is due to the hardness of heart. In the end, it will always be a heart issue, Against God as creator. We rage against His order because we are raging against God. Uh, but a softened heart, a humble heart, as we see in Psalm sixty nine, thirty two, when David writes, When the humble see it they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. Why is order important? It's important because it is what God is showing us in Genesis 1. And by showing us his order, he is showing us his character. After light is created, mind you, I'm going to take a sidebar here, mind you, the ancient view of light would not have been disconnected with fire and heat. Of course, now with fluorescent lighting that we see all around us, we don't necessarily associate light with heat, but obviously you took science courses. Thermal radiation is emitted by any surface that has light on it, even in the case of fluorescence. It just emits a longer wavelength and therefore lower energies, so lower heat, but there is still heat. So light is associated with heat, but with light we see fire and, yes, we see life. And this is what we had gone over last week. Now, day one will go on to day two. And from day two, God would now take the waters and make an expanse. Other translations would have the words like firmament or vault. It's from the Hebrew word rakia, And it's also found in other variations like in Ezekiel 6.11 Where it says, Thus says the Lord God, clap your hands and stamp your foot and say, Alas, because of all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, for they shall fall by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. The word stamp, when he says stamp your foot, that's the word rakia. It means to spread out, it means to separate. And on the second day, God separates the waters from the waters. And we see that God would put in between the waters a separation, air, nitrogen and oxygen. Maybe 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, almost 1% argon, and things of that nature. Maybe sprinkle in some other ingredients. Not exactly sure what it was back then, but what we see is Even now, if water is heated with a light source, then there would have been water vapor. And when water vapor is heated, it rises. And that's why we have convection currents, a.k.a. weather, a.k.a. meteorology. This is for those that listen to the podcast with Miriam. Now, it didn't rain yet. That says that in chapter 2. But with the separation of the waters, we would have witnessed atmospheric pressures, The pressure system come into place, and that's why it's important. From day two, there are separation of waters. What we see, I guess, simply say between the clouds and the seas. In day three, then, God continues to give form to the world, but we start to see the shift from form to fullness. By separating the sea from the land, it's still form. He creates dry land, and with that, God empowers the earth to bring forth vegetation. In the ancient world, oddly enough, more in recent days, as well, we deify the land or the earth. We call it mother, mother earth or mother nature or Gaia. But if you read Genesis, there is no excuse for calling it mother. There is no excuse for deifying the earth as we see that it is God who gives fertility to the ground to bring forth all kinds of plants and vegetation. And in a very real sense, then it is God who orders the earth. He orders the earth to produce. This is his decretive will. This is proper for the earth to do. And that's what leads us into the fourth day. From the fourth day, we see the filling of creation now continue. There is more separation taking place here, and this time with the sun and moon. And while you would see this, if you read the fourth day, you might think, oh, actually, this seems geocentric. You can start there, but I don't think that's going far enough. The sun, moon, and stars are shown to us perhaps initially in a geocentric light, but they are shown to us that they are God's good gifts in creation if you have convection currents starting to take form from the previous day we see now seasons days and years now giving now being given so that among other things time could be marked it's not that time didn't exist but now we have these markers in place and again the sun and moon were also deified in the ancient world remnants of this we still today See with yoga and other practices. But the sun and moon and stars are put in its proper place in Genesis. It does not determine your fate. It doesn't matter what your horoscope is. They are not deities. They are not gods. They do not determine your fate. They are not even to be personified, but they are gifts. Here we also see another concept, the concept of rule come out. The greater light rules, right? And I, I find that interesting. I find that fascinating too. He doesn't even call it the sun here, if you look at it. God doesn't even give it a fancy name. He doesn't call it Ra, like the Egyptians. He doesn't call it Helios, like the Greeks. He doesn't call it Surya, like the Hindus. He doesn't even call it the sun. He simply calls it the greater light that rules and the lesser light because they are not deities. But these greater lights, this greater light and this lesser light, rule over the day and night and the stars it gives us a point of view on what authority starts to look like. What's authority start to look like? In day four, you start seeing it with the filling. Ruling and governing authorities are now related as gifts, as gifts. To have rule and govern over your life is a gift. And these gifts bring with it markers of time. That's what seasons, days, and years are. And now even scientifically, we know that's absolutely the case. Light travels at what? Travels at C, Like the letter C, constant rate of 187,000 miles per hour second, right? And scientists can measure time that way. But the dominant and major point must not be lost. The sun, moon, and stars are gifts. They are not God's. On the fifth day, God creates swarms of living creatures in the sea and the birds of the air. It shows us that water does not have the power to produce life, and neither does the air. They are not powers that can create anything. Only God, through his efficacious word, can create life. This is what is stressed over and over and over again. God creates life. It's not waters, it's not the air, it's not the elements that have power in itself. It's God. But this time he blesses them. He gives them the potency of life and commands them to multiply. And in biology class, you might remember that one of the key characteristics of life is precisely that, reproduction. Genesis captures this key component but also gives us its source. What does that mean? It not only gives us the fact that reproduction is a part of life, it gives us why. Why does life reproduce? Because it is a blessing and command from God. There is a noteworthy segment here where in verse 21, God creates the great sea creatures as well as the other things. I particularly like that because in the book of Job the Leviathan is mentioned. I think one of our elders kid is named after the Leviathan, but I don't know, I'm not sure. And then the ancient, but in the ancient and pagan mythology, monsters like the Leviathan and the Behemoth were representative of something. They were representative of rebellion. They were representative of chaos. You had to fight so if you were a god in the ancient world, in mythology and other stories, you had to fight these behemoths and Leviathan-like creatures, but not in the Genesis account. These creatures do not rival God. God doesn't wrestle with the Leviathan. And even the great sea creatures are subservient to him. They are subject to him. All things are subject to him. To God. And I like that side note that we see in verse 21. But it leads us to the sixth day. We finally get here, and God starts off by creating every creature on land, or the earth. And he starts there because he's going to man, and man will be the last creature he creates. I've said this before, but there is a formulaic way Things are written for us in Genesis 1. A pattern for us to follow and to learn from. Pattern reveals order and order reveals character. But starting from verse 26, there is a break from the pattern. And anytime a pattern is broken, it should perk up the ears of any attentive listener. What is that pattern? Whenever God created, he would say, let there be or let the earth let the waters it was always impersonal however here he says something significantly different he says let us make man of all of creation this aspect of creation is set apart of all the separations this is separated even further from all of them so then there's a few ways to take this then let us the first breakaway from the impersonal let there be to the personal let us. This is a momentous step in creation then. And we are to make sure that we do not miss it. Because who is us in let us, right? When God says let us, what does he mean? And there is a slight break from understanding between scholars. Some say that let us might be the counsel of heaven meaning including angels. But that will be a sudden introduction of a foreign agent. Angels are not mentioned anywhere before. And so why are they assumed here? And secondly, why would God need counsel to create anything? In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 14, it says, Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? God didn't need any counsel, not even to make man. So I don't think that is the answer to what let us means. And some say it's simply then an honorific that's used of God. And I tend to agree with that to a degree. It's an honorific that is used of God. You could use the plural form to, for someone to be more honorable. It denotes a fullness that goes beyond the singular. But even if that is true, have you ever thought about why? Why is the plural more honorific? Because God is enough. If God is enough, and he is, he is enough, the singular should be enough if he is singular. But as many Christians have pointed out in the past, this is pointing ultimately to God's tri-unity, his trinity. In John 14, 23, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Even here, Jesus speaks of this unity with the father, our, us. And if you think about that, even from Genesis 1, it's simply amazing. And God says, let us make man. So how is man separated from the rest of creation then? The next creature, man, will then possess some distinguishing characteristics. Remember, it's a separation beyond separation. So that distinguishing feature we have to notice He will have the same properties as the other land creatures. He will be made of dust. He will feed as they feed. He will reproduce just like them. But at the same time, he will have something far more incredible. What is that? In 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Man is also made in God's image, his likeness. There is no conjunction here between image and likeness because image and likeness are there to help define each other. Other creatures are made according to their kinds. Humans are made from the image of God. People throughout the ages have thought the image of God to mean a plethora of things. Sometimes they are wrong, but let me start off with the ancient world. In the ancient world, People would have thought the king was the image of God. The king ruled because God ruled. He ruled on God's behalf. Nations and empires have historically deified kings. But which nation did not? Who did not do that? From Nebuchadnezzar to Caesar, who did not bow down to these kings? even at the threat of being thrown into a fiery furnace. Who did not bow down to kings? It was the people of God. The alarming thing that people would have noticed is that not only are the kings made in the image of God, every human being is made in the image of God. Yes, man is king then. He is king over all creation. God sets up man to rule over his creation. At the same time, we see that he is still made out of dust. It's the same stuff that animals are made of. So being made in the image of God, then, does not mean you are a deity, then, because you are made out of dust, can it? So being made in the image of God, while being an extraordinary thing, does not equate you with God. But there is undoubtedly a clear connection to God that is far greater than any other creature. So, there are, in the very least, at least two things that we can consider as we continue to learn more about the image of God or the imago Dei. Number one, being made in the image of God means that man is not God. To reflect something is not to be that something, a statue. While reflecting the image of what it was made after is not the image, uh, is not the object that it was made to look like. And we must remember that we are still creatures and God is the creator. He is the first and primary cause and no one else gets to sit in that seat. That means that we are finite, dependent, we are secondary causes We are accountable then to the primary cause. We are accountable to God, and God is not accountable to us. Number two, we see that being made in the image of God further separates us, though, from the animals. There is a distinguishing from the animals, and it means there is a then special design for humans. While we are subordinate to God, we are not subordinate to animals. We don't venerate them. We don't worship them. We have dominion over them. God has made us to rule over them. This is God's command as we know it as stewardship. But it also means another thing besides those two things. The creation of God, if you look at it in its sequence, is the pinnacle of creation. That is astounding. You look at other ancient texts, humans are merely like little ants. The gods created the humans out of, you know, the killing of Tiamat. you see all these little humans dispersed and the gods have to kind of round, round them up together. That's not how Genesis talks about humans. Of all his creation, God builds up, builds up. He goes from the greater, greater, greater. And then you see this pinnacle. And what is that pinnacle? It is the creation of man. And to make sure that we understand that the command is followed by the first poem ever written in the Bible in verse 27. There is poetry after the creation of man. Verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. If we understand how significant man then is to God... We would treat each other differently than we do now. And the more we understand the gravity of the Imago Dei, the way we treat each other would drastically change. But that is now being torn down in today's society. It's not the Imago Dei that we reference when we refer to humans How do we look at each other? There is an author that I have quoted before. It's an author that people like Bill Gates and other global elites really admire and they like and they put on platforms. I'm going to read a little longer quote. This is what Yuval Harari has said. He's an Israeli philosopher and this is what he said I think a week or two ago and I'm going to quote from him. Maybe many most legal systems are based on this idea, this this belief in human rights. But human rights are just like heaven and like God. It's just a fictional story that we've invented and spread around. It may be a very nice story. It may be a very attractive story. You want to believe it, but it's just a story. It's not reality. It's not a biological reality just as jellyfish and woodpeckers and ostriches have no rights. Homo sapiens have no rights. Also take a human, cut him open, look inside, you will find their blood, you will find the heart and lungs and kidneys, but you don't find there any rights. The only place you find rights is in the fictional stories that humans have invented and spread around. To me, that's a fascinating statement, is it not? This is precisely the godless reality that will occur given what people want. They want to reject Genesis 1. And even if you said, well, I don't, I I kind of agree. I don't I don't want to believe in the fictional story of Genesis 1. But I do believe in human rights. You can say something like that. You don't need God to have human rights. People might respond that way. My question then would be, how can you have human rights then if you don't know what a human is? You don't even know what a woman is. How can you have women's rights? We have right now in present day a sitting U.S. Supreme Court justice that cannot define what a woman is because she apparently is not a biologist. You are not for human rights if you don't even know what a human is. And our nation was based on this reality, that humans were made in the image of God. In the preamble to the Declaration of Independence, says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Where did they get that from? They get that from the Bible. They got it from God. And a hundred years later, Lincoln would call this Understanding. If you understand the image of God, or Abraham Lincoln would call it a rebuke and a stumbling block to tyranny and oppression. If you understand what humans are, you understand what human rights are, that is why we have the freedom in the world today. That is why we have freedom in this nation now. Lincoln would call it a rebuke and a stumbling block to tyranny and oppression. Why? Because if Yuval Harari is right, If he is right in what he is saying, then there is no horror that you can do to a man that you can't justify. Why are you so upset if I cut you up? You're just blood vessels, lungs, kidneys. That's all you are. I'm looking for these human rights. I didn't find any. You're just like a jellyfish. They would equate it, why would you cry every time you break off a piece of chocolate? And like, oh my gosh, I broke this chocolate. That's how they would think of it as. It's just chemical reactions. They would say, stop placing your fictional stories to put in some non-existent value. But throughout history, we have seen the nations that have held these values versus the ones that did not. Which kingdom lasted whose kingdom continues to reign to this very day? Who is the rock that smashed the feet of iron and clay where it became a great mountain that now fills the whole earth? God the creator defines what man is. And man is male and female. There are two sexes, and God made male and female to complement each other. And you are made in the image of God. You are God's representative here on earth. And so how do we then represent God? Well, God gives man a blessing as a gift, but he also gives him function. So there is a blessing and function, or gift and function. It's a trifold blessing here with a twofold function that's revealed. So three times God blesses man, Once where he blesses them, it says directly, but then he blesses them of being fruitful, and then the blessing of 29 in his giving, right? But what is the twofold function? Twofold function is number one, to be fruitful and multiply. So how do you reflect the image of God? He says, be fruitful and multiply. That means to increase in number. And number two Secondly, it's to fill the earth and subdue it. It means to have dominion over it, to rule over creation. And to that effect, he gives that third blessing in 29, I will give you every food. It means everything that you need. That means the hand of God is what feeds us so that we can complete these tasks. That's why when Jesus teaches us to pray and he says, Give us today our daily bread. We understand that ultimately our food, our feeding, comes from God's hand. And in the very last verse of this passage that was read, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Once he finishes his creation, he says it was very good. It was completed in totality, and there was divine satisfaction. And this is also why when we receive things to consume them from creation, we receive things in thanksgiving. I particularly love it that we pray a prayer of thanksgiving before we eat our food, because we understand that this food is from the Lord. Christians and the people of God receive food, all food, with thanksgiving. Man, above all the creatures, were uniquely created in the image of God, in the Imago Dei. That means we have a profound capacity to reflect and mirror the character of God. There is a divine purpose in this. There is a divine destiny in this and that means there awaits those that are in him an eternal glory in which the father has prepared for us before the foundation of the world what that means is that what happens from creation to the end of time matters it matters because that was part of the design and so it does matter how we treat each other it matters what happens to the person suffering across the street to the baby inside a mother's womb. They all matter. Life matters. And when you understand the weight of the Imago day, loving your neighbor is not an option that you mull over. It's a most weighty command. Now to this, people have added and they have asked questions. Aren't gay people? Aren't people in the LGBTQ community also made in the image of God? Shouldn't we have compassion for them? And I absolutely think that is true. Absolutely so. All people are made in the image of God. And now in the evangelical world, there has been some confusion. If we are to have compassion, then should we not then attend an LGBTQ wedding? And we I took a little bit of time to cover that in the podcast, but I would like to say here that it is not compassion to attend an LGBTQ wedding. It is not compassion to disaffirm what God has affirmed. When God said he has made man, male and female, he created them. This is what we affirm. And it is compassion then to tell people the truth and live by that truth and not celebrate what is not truth. If it is not truth, if it leads to chaos, disorder, and to every sin, you cannot celebrate that. And a wedding is a celebration of a union, but there is no union outside of what God creates. It is not compassion, then, to attend an LGBTQ wedding or to affirm people that go against God's Order with their lifestyle. It is compassion then to tell people the truth. You are special because you are made in the image of God. But you must follow what the image of God would dictate the commands, the functions that God gives us. And so I would like to end with this go forth, love your neighbor who is also made in the image of God. Share the truth by living in the truth, by speaking the truth. Just as God has loved you and given you his truth, his son, Jesus Christ, he gave his son for you so that you may have eternal life. So we now also live in accordance with the truth that is in our Lord. Jesus Christ. May we live for his glory and may he be glorified with our lives. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you that we see here in the creation order your character, your goodness, your loving kindness over your people. Who are we that you love us so much? It baffles the mind, but it gives us a heart of incredible gratitude. And may we now in turn, in light of this truth, worship you with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all all of our strength. Let's take this time to reflect and pray on what we have been shown and given the order of creation, the revealing of God's character May we worship him with all our lives. So let us pray.